I am so excited to have Anna Pepard here with me on the Professor Latinx video cast where we're going to talk about all things sexuality, gender, superheroes, and a lot more. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, gosh, you know, I've learned so much from you and your work in comic studies, but let me ask you, Anna, how in the, like, how did you get here? I know you did a PhD at York University, um, but share with us your journey and how you got to where you are right now. Well, I'd always liked comics, but I'm always interested in like hearing sort of women's experiences of kind of getting into comics because I mean, it's, people have really kind of different experiences a lot of the time. We get into it kind of in sideways ways and stuff. I first got interested in comics when I was like a rabid fan of the television show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman from the early to mid 90s. Um, I was 12 when that show was on, so I was just like the perfect target audience for this kind of female gaze, kind of post-feminist take on the Superman mythos, Superman as romantic comedy. That is just, I mean, I'd read basically any superhero thing with that premise. Um, but So I read some comics sort of after that, but I definitely found it hard to kind of get into comics as like as someone who didn't have easy access and everything. But also it's just a thing where like when you're a female reader, you're not sort of given comics, you know, like it's just not a thing you're kind of expected to be into. So I sort of read some comics throughout my teen years, um, but I actually didn't get really, really into them until my master's year at the University of Toronto, oddly enough. That was just a really stressful academic year, and I um, <laughs> don't know whether I should say this or not, but um, comic book torrents got really good around that time, so I was able to steal a lot of comics, which was essential to me as a very poor grad student who could not afford to buy them. So I had a torrent of the entire Marvel Civil War event, um, which like was like hundreds of comics, and I read all of them and was just completely hooked. So I started doing like a little bit of kind of comic book and superhero research during my master's year, but it wasn't really my focus. When I went to York University, I was going to write a dissertation on um, representations of gender in American national naturalist fiction, focusing on the literature of Frank Norris. <laughs> that was what I pitched to them. <laughs> Um, that project obviously fell by the wayside. <laughs> um, yeah, what sort of drew me to kind of doing superhero comics in particular, I mean, I've always been kind of a visually oriented person. I'm the daughter of an artist and I, some of this stuff back here is silk screens that I've made. Um, I kind of suck at art, but I do like making pop art. Um, but, um, but it was actually sort of extending kind of my, in a strange way, given how like sort of patriarchal and sexist the superhero genre is and exclusionary in a variety of different ways. It was actually kind of, you know, like my feminism that got me into it in terms of its representations of bodies and some of the different sort of non-normative things that bodies do in the superhero genre, but also the way bodies are at the center of the narrative. Because I'm someone who's always kind of I'm really tall, and this has like caused me a lot of insecurity over the course of my life. I've always felt like I wasn't feminine or like whatever, and I've been an athlete at various points in my life too. And I've always had this weird insecurity about that. But something about sort of the boldness of bodies in superhero comics, like the way bodies direct the narrative, I found really kind of inspiring. Again, when I was sort of dealing with that sort of intense stress, but then stayed with me because the stress just keeps coming and sort of putting yourself into that imaginary world and sort of mm, being within all those sort of like interconnected stories but again just also those sort of body focused narratives I found very inspiring and 
yeah, like for us, again, like sexist as the superhero genre is, I also found it, find it almost foundational to my feminism in a really weird way. And that's sort of where a lot of my work on wanting to do topics on gender and sexuality in the superhero genre comes from, because by exploring some of those topics, we can explore some of those possibilities that go a little bit underrepresented and still in scholarship, although it's getting obviously a lot better. But when I first started researching comics and superheroes, it was like... <laughs> no books by anybody that wasn't a straight white man and um that's obviously gotten a lot in part because of wonderful work that someone like you does which i very much appreciate in turn um, that's a very long-winded answer but no that was amazing yeah it actually kind of resonated deeply with me as well you know i thought just, it might <laughs> um so this leads me to you know super sex what a like such an awesome title and i'm like so happy that it's in the world comics and graphic nonfiction series um but yeah tell us like sexuality and superheroes i mean you you kind of brought us to this threshold um and i know that you know your introduction is very like critical and theoretical and important so maybe you can share with us a little bit like a teaser i know it drops in 20 uh, this fall um but yeah tell us about super sex yeah so i mean <laughs> As like sort of a, an ACA fan, a pop culture scholar, I mean, a lot of us kind of end up doing research that kind of extends from our own sort of interests and fixations. And I mean, for me, you know, sort of related to what I was just talking about, sort of, <laughs> I've made a joke that my entire investment in superhero stories is because I'm trying to like access or figure out kind of like the sexual kind of desires and fixations that this genre first inspired in me. Um, and that's partly true, although that's obviously sort of, you know, a silly answer because I'm also interested in these things in an academic context and think that they can offer a lot to topics of, of gender and sexuality. Um, comics, I mean, in terms of comics and sexuality, um, I think there's going to be a lot more work in that area as your anthology is going to help push us uh, um, your Rutledge companion to uh, sex and gender and comic book studies is gonna really help a lot there. But um, comics have a lot to offer kind of discussions of sexuality, like in terms of a lot of things that are already established about comics, their non-linearity, -linear um, their ability to communicate sort of fragmented perspectives, there be being a very useful sort of genre, um, medium for identification. All of those things can be really useful for sort of expanding sexuality studies, which, in terms of pop culture, sexuality studies has really been focused on like film primarily. And um, that's kind of been a limitation because, especially because, I mean, you know, I primarily, primarily do kind of mainstream comics, but I mean, certainly alternative comics have so much to offer the topic of sexuality. Um, so that is sort of a factor in some of our approach to the, to the work in super sex. But it's also just the uniquely kind of controversial and complicated nature of sexuality within the superhero genre. So superheroes, you know, obviously we have things like Frederick Wortham targeting the sexuality and gender representation of, of Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin in particular. In, in Seduction of the Innocent, his section about Batman and Robin representing a wish dream of two homosexuals living together is probably the most quoted thing from Seduction of the Innocent and has created plenty of controversy over the years. Um, so, but one of the interesting things that I found, you know, in terms of my research and, you know, thinking about censorship is the way superhero comics were able to survive the restrictions of the code and sort of encode sexuality within their stories in ways that were particularly effective in helping them survive those restrictions. It's always been a genre in which sexuality is both present and absent. 
Um, it's very obvious, it's very graphic, it's very just out there and flamboyant, and yet at the same time, sexuality is generically denied, um, both in terms of, you know, the denial of sexual characteristics um, for male superheroes, you know, for most of the genre's history, we don't see, like, really penises or packages depicted, um, but also in terms of Dynamics like the hypersexualization of female superheroes, but kind of the denial of their sexual agency would be another example of, pre of presence and absence. Um, there's just so many layers of that sexual presence and absence in superhero comics, and then sort of almost doubled by things like the secret identity convention and costumes and all of those things, and the nature of superpowers and all the different sexual metaphors that those can express. And it just wasn't something, it was something that I saw come up sort of a lot of in sort of scattered research, but it wasn't something that had been kind of a main topic. Um, and I was surprised by that and wanted to kind of fill that gap. And one of the, I will say one of the most exciting things about developing this project too was sort of the messages that I would get from people who, <laughs> I had a number of people who were like, I reached out to them to be involved based on their previous work. And they were like, oh, I don't have time. And then thought about it for two days. And we're like, oh my God, no, I have to participate because I've been wanting to write about this my entire life. So I think it's going to be something that resonates with a lot of people in terms of being an underexplored topic that people have been thinking about and wanting to see represented, um, but that hasn't been represented in a comprehensive way up to this point. Yeah, I can't wait. I really can't wait. I need, uh, we need, um, we need some, an apparatus, a kind of conceptual vocabulary for us and for our students to kind of understand, I don't know, the complexity of a kind of a CW, you know, Cat Kane and uh, Valkyrie and the sort of Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, right? And of course, yeah. you know, the cross-dressing that cosplay allows for, I can't wait. Um, speaking of penises, um, here we are and Batman damned, uh, right? 2019, if I, if I remember right. Um, gosh, tell us about this, um, this moment in comic, in superhero comics history. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this was a title within DC's Black Label imprint, which is kind of their adult imprint. Um, it's sort of doing limited series spotlighting kind of superstar, super popular creators and stuff. Um, and this was one of the first titles, or maybe, was it the first title in their imprint? I should know that off the top of my head, but anyway, one of the first ones. And it happened to um, originally feature this on-panel depiction of Batman's penis. So this was the first official on-panel depiction of Batman's penis. Um, it created quite a controversy. Um, I remember when this happened and it was just like every single like geek news site definitely reported on it. People were just like <laughs> competing to try to come up with hilarious headlines, obviously. But I mean, also like it was discussed in mainstream media as well, you know, like it, jokes made about it on late night with Seth Meyers and that kind of thing. And, you know, mainstream kind of news outlets like the Guardian and stuff sort of reported on it as well. So, like really quickly DC responded to this in a really kind of comprehensive way of like getting it out of there um, and the way that they responded to it I thought was really really interesting so Jim Lee and Dan DiDio, um, the co-publishers of DC um, both um, I don't remember which quote is which but um, blamed it on like production errors and said that it wasn't the message that they wanted to communicate with their black label imprint. Anyway, this is all very suspicious considering that they're the publishers and Jim Lee actually provided cover art for a variant issue of this comic. So you would think 
He might not know what was in it, but at the very least, it's a bit of a, a suspicious explanation. Um, and there was speculation even that, you know, this was going to sort of impact their willingness to do an adult label at all after attracting this much attention. So, I mean, it's just fascinating that, you know, there would be that much controversy about, and I will note too that it's not a sexual scene. Like, I mean, it is very sexual, um, but at the same time, it's not a scene in which sex is happening. It's a scene, like, it's very, very aggressively masculine. and Batman is stripping off his costume so that his computer can scan him for knife wounds. Like, <laughs> it's not like, in terms of like being afraid of your phallic masculinity, that's definitely an emphasis of the scene um, rather than the other way around. But just the presence of a penis just was considered just something that they couldn't abide. And I mean, it gets us right back to Frederick Wortham's sort of charges about Batman and Robin, right? And it gets us right back to how we think about superheroes' relationship to sexuality. And I, there is just sort of, it depends on who you're talking to, but there is just a lingering thing that a superhero can't be sexual and heroic. And um, in my, my own chapter for the super sex book, which I did something about my first love, Lois and Clark, there's a really interesting episode of that show in which Superman gets embroiled in a sex scandal because this is after they're married in the show, it's in the final season, and they're caught by a tabloid photographer like making out in a hotel. So Superman's caught making out with Lois Lane um, and a tabloid photographer captures this and how they end up solving it. Well, <laughs> I won't, that's not really as important as the nature of the controversy within the episode. So Lois has this really interesting speech within the episode where, you know, Clark Kent is saying that he wants to solve the controversy by revealing his dual identity and being like, so we're married, we weren't cheating, blah, blah, blah. And she says, if you reveal that to people, they'll lose all faith in Superman. If you tell them that you're married, that you have desires, that you like have this family, like they won't be able to believe in you as a hero anymore. And it's a fascinating speech because it says so much about that prudishness that you're talking about, right? I mean, to put that speech in the mouth of land of Lois, who's the character who names Superman, who is responsible for kind of promoting Superman, who writes about Superman, it's just a really fascinating kind of like meta commentary moment, not necessarily a positive one, but definitely an interesting one that I felt reflected on this topic quite a bit. Yeah, really, really fascinating. Um, like you were saying, the kind of the oppositions, the tensions, um, and then of course, finding spaces within superhero comics that um, offer, you know, spectrums, right, and complexities um, for us to kind of, you know, teach or think about or write about. Um, gosh, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, get, going back to this Frederick Wortham, uh, if I, yeah, um, to kind of the you know, this moment of extreme censorship based on one person's kind of extremely prudish sort of understanding of how the world works to pornified culture and, but also gendered violence, right? Um, so maybe you can take us a little bit along this. And of course this image um, I thought was, you know, really powerful. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I'll say about Wortham, I mean, comic scholars will kind of know this already, but um, his reading of sort of the homoerotic implications of Batman and Robin, it's not so much that that's wrong, it's more 
that his interpretation of what like the consequences of that are sort of what we can take issue with right i mean a lot of people have talked about comics being sort of a inherently queer space and superhero genre as well being perhaps an inherently queer space in terms of sort of some of these metaphors of sort of disguise and revealing and you know the the sort of even something like the um adopted families which batman and robin are, are definitely a part of as well the bat family in general um the x-men as well too adopted families but um but yeah, so I mean, it wasn't so much like the fact that he noticed that because that was definitely present and many queer fans have seen that as being definitely present, but it was more that he thought of this and his specific words about Wonder Woman was that she, she and her also sort of gender deviant followers were a morbid ideal. Mm -hmm. um, he thought that this would lead to psychological disturbance and like death in the Wonder Woman quote, right? So, I mean, that was sort of the issue that you can take with Wortham there. And I mean, you know, there's been these reevaluations of Wortham over the years. And I mean, he was liberal for his day. It's not that he was this arch conservative. It was more just that <laughs> people thought homosexuality was wrong in 1954. And that's like the position that he took. So to just want to like mention that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a huge question. I mean, one of the things, I mean, just in terms of presence and absence in an image like this, I mean, you can think about how dramatically present like sexuality is in an image like this, but then how much it can be denied as well. And I mean, in this image, you know, <laughs> the implications of kind of costumes and monstrosity and like all the, the, the amount of stuff going on here. I mean, I don't know, I'm not really answering your question properly, but like what, what, in terms of taking us all the way from Frederick Wortham to the present, but could you like phrase that like a little bit more specifically? Oh, yeah, no, that's a big one. It's a big chunk. Um, no, I just, I think, you know, you were, you've been talking about this all along, but in this kind of, in the spectrum that we've been kind of delivered in terms of the way sexuality is refigured through superheroes there's an almost more extreme spectrum or opposition when it comes to the kind of insertion of sex and okay. and gender and and then like what what the kinds of maybe violence that we see too that are on that extreme end of the pole when we have kind of sex in front of us right well, yeah, I mean, you know, female superheroes have borne the brunt of that over the course of the genre's history in terms of them being so hypersexualized. So like almost any violence that they're going to be involved with is going to have that connotation. And, you know, it is exaggerated in superhero artwork for the most part. I mean, that's, um, I've written a little bit about, oh, way back in my PhD dissertation on Marvel Comics, I wrote about um, covers of Marvel's um, su female superhero comic books from the 1970s in terms of um, sexual exploitive, like sexual violence imagery um, often being used for the covers of those titles, which is very striking since all of those titles were supposed to appeal to girls and women and resonate with feminism. Um, but you, it, it, I felt like that was a good example of like how prevalent kind of imagery involving sexualized violence and female superheroes is because you had these feminist titles and it's just so conventional that no one thought that was a problem. And I mean, one of the ultimate examples of that, um, I was giving a guest lecture for a dear friend about this last week, um, the story, um, The Rape of Ms. Marvel from um, Avengers number 200, in which, <laughs> I don't even know if I want to explain the plot of that. It's this really, really horrible story in which this kind of like guy from another dimension kidnaps her and impregnates her with himself um, after sort of brainwashing her into thinking that she loves him. And then she has this rapid pregnancy back in the regular dimension and 
and gives birth to him and he grows up into an adult man in like a day and tells her how he loves her and tells her about brainwashing her um, and then she runs off with him to his other dimension never to be seen again and so this is Marvel's premier feminist superhero who'd been modeled after Gloria Steinem um, just three years earlier um, so, you know, a storyline in which she gives birth to her rapist and falls in love with him and runs off with him never to be seen again is sort of the height of problematic like, gender and sexualized violence in superhero comics um, to the degree to which um, um, Carol Strickland is the one who coined um, in, a fan, in a fanzine um, calling the story the rape of Ms. Marvel and calling out in particular sort of male fans for not caring about this or even seeing it as rape. I mean, it was just yeah. seen as conventional, so it wasn't even seen that way. Yeah, um, and then Chris Claremont famously tried to redress it in Avengers Annual Number 10 from a year later in 1981 um, by having Carol Danvers um, confront the Avengers and describe what happened to her as rape and um, confront their implication in letting her go off with this guy who clearly admitted to brainwashing her, right? So that's, in, you know, there's so much that's complicated about that in terms of it could be this genre that could tell some interesting stories about sexual violence and even about rape, but particularly in the case of female superheroes, the kind of tropification of that has made telling those kind of stories really hard. The fact that almost every female superhero has been a victim of rape or sexual violence um, makes it just really hard to even have those discussions because... I mean, the thing that I always come back to about why that's particularly offensive is just you have to think about what are the fantasies that this genre is offering to girls and women at this point. If it's, I mean, you think about something about, you know, from Batman the Killing Joke, sort of the, the um, maiming and assault of Barbara Gordon Batgirl by the Joker, which is still brought up as an important aspect of Barbara's um, legacy, despite it trying to be sort of um, rejigged over the years various times. And you have to think about what's that offering to girls and women who want to be a fan of this genre. It's telling them to know how, how strong they are, no matter how heroic they are, no matter what powers they are, even if there's someone like Ms. Marvel, who basically has all the powers of Superman, they are still vulnerable to sexual violence and like uniquely vulnerable to sexual violence. And that's one of the things I find most disturbing about kind of that theme. Um, but you, you know, we can also talk about stuff like um, that because women's sexual agency is often not emphasized too, that it doesn't become sort of as exciting of a space for sort of, you know, representations of female sexuality as it could be. Because it could be this space where, you know, it could be very empowering to run around in your spandex outfit and be super powered and not like, and have consequence free sex and stuff. And certain characters like She-Hulk have that going on like a little bit, albeit problematically. But um, I would certainly like to see sort of, a more positive embrace of the sexual of the sexual possibilities of the genre for both male characters and female characters. So, gosh, thank you so much for that. Really, that was uh, a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, so amazing. Thank you. So amazing. Um, yeah. So we've got this cool, as you mentioned, spaces of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, and I I want to hear all about this research on Marvel swimsuit special from 91 to 95. It's just um, like remarkable what you do in this piece. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of based on a conference paper I did years and years ago. I mean, when I first, I think most people have had this reaction when they're encountering the Marvel swimsuit special for the first time, which is just like WTF, right? It's just, it's a really, really weird um, comic or magazine or whatever we want to call it. And the thing that I find particularly interesting about it, so there were a number of swimsuit and lingerie specials kind of like, um, 
during the like early 90s like well into the 2000s like basically like every mainstream well mainstream and indie kind of publisher of like sort of genre comics superhero stuff sort of action comics did one of these uh, with the notable exception of DC who never did one but um the one that's the thing that's particularly fascinating to be about marvel is that they included equal numbers of male and female pinups which none of the other specials did they're usually just sort of buxom bad girls but the marvel one includes the boys as well which given the prudishness we just saw about batman's penis you can think about how notable that is and one of the images that you have up there um, at the top right um, is captain america by lou harrison um, which is definitely like an image Image that like courts a queer gaze or at least like a gay vague kind of atmosphere at the very least. So we do have a number of kind of convention, more conventional images like the one at the far left there is um, uh, the X-Men character Boom Boom um, depicted by Rob Liefeld. She's wearing a string bikini and just appalling <laughs> her teenage teammates but kind of interesting her, her older mentor team leader Cable which is just inappropriate on so many levels. Um, but yeah, so it was like the equal numbers of the male and female pinups that really interested me, but also just, I mean, the fact that it is this document that shows that the superhero genre, that the superhero industry is sort of aware of sort of the complexities of desires that are sort of included in it. And even though the swimsuit special forestalls a lot of those possibilities, like I talk in the piece about the very kind of limited representation of LGBTQ superheroes, we really only have the superhero North Star depicted because he was like the only like him and like a couple of other super minor characters were like the only sort of queer members of the Marvel Universe during that era. Um, and then he doesn't get pictured in any pinups with any straight heroes, which is notable. So then you have something like this Lou Harrison image of Captain America, which does potentially court a queer gaze. And yet we have definite limits on that since he's not depicted alongside any, you know, canonically, like actually gay characters, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, in terms of that presence and absence, it's really fascinating, but also just in terms of, I don't know, sort of the superhero genre admitting like that those multiplicity of, of desires exist. And also, I didn't talk about this in the piece, but there are letters in the Marvel swimsuit special and they are split between male and female readers as well. So there was definitely like an understanding that this would appeal to women as well as men, which is really, really interesting for me as someone who's done a lot of work kind of on female fandom and particularly within the superhero genre and sort of various attempts to appeal to female readers over the years. Although <laughs> it is funny the way the things that the women who write in really want didn't really happen they really really wanted gambit <laughs> and marvel didn't give them sexy gambit although the image that you have at the bottom right there of of robbie reese um from um kevin wada and um oh kevin wada and who is the other person that was doing that swimsuit special oh how can i not think of it right now um, anyway, they were trying to do um, a redo of the swimsuit special um, a, a few years ago and uh, didn't kind of go through with it, but um, Gambit was one of the first preview images they released. He's a, he's a notable kind of female gaze, queer gaze character, so it was notable that these... Um, oh, Chris Anka is the other person that does it. It was notable that these two uh, queer men um, chose him as a character, but... Um, Marvel Swimsuit is fascinating. If you're not aware of it, definitely a number of people have written kind of... <laughs> things about it spotlighting the weirdness of it and I think the weirdness of it is one of the most wonderful things so sort of you know what is that Eros and you know Thanos uh, <laughs> here we are you also work on uh, death 
Um, oh, I can't even look at this. <laughs> but um, yeah, sort of how does this fit in with um, your research vision, uh, your program, yeah. Um, so this is a thing I wrote for the site Vault of Culture, sort of about, I kind of, I, I didn't read as many superhero comics like for a while after finishing my PhD dissertation. It was just like, I was just burnt out on it, to be honest, um, after like kind of, you know, making your hobby your job and teaching it as well and doing all of that stuff. But just like a few months ago, I started getting really back into X-Men comics again. And I really rediscovered my love of the X-Men Nightcrawler, who I used to be just deeply obsessively in love with um, during my PhD, actually. Um, one of my stress reliefs um, during that time. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I wanted to write something about why I love the things that I love, because I write a lot about the things that I love, but I don't talk that much about why I love them. And although I'm, you know, I'm not someone who's embarrassed about the things that she likes, um, but at the same time, admitting how emotional your investment is can always be scary, like particularly... I spent a lot of time sort of as a superhero fan and scholar kind of trying to establish my credibility. I mean, when you're kind of like an outsider in these spaces, you always have to do a lot of that, right? And so that's part of why I don't like to talk about these things. And I mean, there's even a thing where I always say my favorite superhero is Daredevil, which is true, but I don't talk, I didn't usually talk about Nightcrawler as being one of my favorites. And I wanted to think about kind of why that was. What was there about that kind of attachment that kind of embarrassed me or, or made me not want to talk about it? And I think it was just the depth of emotionalism, which like X-Men comics really engender. And so I went back and kind of was rediscovering the character and I read kind of his resurrection arc. So he died and then got resurrected as happens to superheroes. And I just, I had a real emotional reaction to it and I've fallen totally back in with X-Men and totally back in with complaining about how he's always underused and under <laughs> badly represented, which is what you always do as an X-Men fan. <laughs> You're always complaining about X-Men not being exactly what you want it to be. But um, he was also a very kind of inspirational character for me in terms of I've gone through some chronic health issues in the past few years, which are still ongoing. And um, just sort of, I don't know, sort of engaging with these fantasy spaces, but particularly a character like this, who is kind of defining thing is sort of responding to his difference and his persecution with always sort of like love and humor. Um, it's just a really powerful character for me for, you know, dealing with those life stresses. Yeah, no, wonderful. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Gosh, you know, you also, you, at the very beginning of our conversation, you, you talked about the importance of kind of women creators, um, and you've done research in this area as well. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit about your discoveries here? Yeah, I mean, things have gotten, again, a lot kind of better since I was first doing some of that research. I mean, when I was, I wrote um, a piece called The Feminist History of Marvel for um, a book, um, called Make Ours Marvel. Um, it's an anthology about kind of the Marvel brand and those things. So I was writing about kind of the company's um, various attempts to appeal to women over the years. And uh, all four of these titles were part of that push. So the cat at the far left. So all of these titles um, that you have up here are written and drawn by women. And were sort of an attempt to appeal to female readers in various ways, although attempts to appeal to male readers too, judging by the objectification going on on a number of these. But The Cat is written by Linda Feet with um, the art in the first issue is by Mary Severin, who's a veteran of EC Comics as well. She's a really fascinating comics industry figure. 
Um, and it was their first superhero written and drawn by women and their first superhero that really resonated with feminism. Um, I always teach um, The Cat because it's one of those forgotten titles that, you know, is still really, really interesting within the history of kind of feminist representations and appeals to women and the ways that superheroes can resonate kind of with feminist purpose. And I could go on and on about the interesting legacy of that character, the costume. So the original cat becomes Tigra, um, <laughs> which is very problematic. And as much as she's one of those kind of poster childs for problematic objectification, even though she's a very fun character, Tigra, she's a tiger lady who fights crime in a teensy tiny bikini. So this is the legacy of Marvel's first feminist superhero. Um, but the costume of the cat later gets picked up by Patsy Walker, who is one of the teen humor comics that Marvel was doing in the years prior to them getting back into doing superhero comics and in some ways the popularity of Patsy Walker kept the company that would become Marvel afloat during those years. So having Patsy Walker in the mid-1970s um, sort of discover this costume of the cat and become a member of the Marvel Universe as the superhero known as Hellcat is a really interesting and underexplored kind of like feminist legacy. And I mean, part of, you know, coming up with something like a feminist legacy of Marvel or a feminist history of Marvel is just finding spaces of feminism within a genre that doesn't necessarily do feminism well, but also doesn't even like do it on purpose most of the time. And yet something like that Patsy Walker story, like that's so amazing that like this teen humor comic that kept the company afloat. And then she's into, and, you know, a comic that was for girls and women as well, that she comes into this universe and takes on the costume of Marvel's first feminist superhero and is this amazing superhero called Hellcat. And I don't know, things like that can be very powerful when you're sort of uncovering the history of these things. And I like to spotlight them to make it clear that this has never been a genre just for a certain type of fan. And there's a lot more possibilities present. Yeah, and that the, and that the kind of um, the digested version of the history of comics, superhero comics, yeah. not really the history, right? Um, yeah. It takes the kind of work that you're doing to really show that it's actually pretty uh, a pretty complicated landscape out there um gosh what about this work that you do with uh superheroic style uh yeah that was a thing that i did for um an online kind of journal magazine called the fashion studies journal um i a part of kind of superheroes kind of helping me with my self-confidence and everything it's just sort of talked about bodies at the beginning but i mean also just you know <sighs> the like willingness to kind of be out there and unashamed and flamboyant is like something that I've taken a lot of inspiration from for super with superheroes. I find it really hard as kind of, you know, I don't even want to call myself younger at this point, but <laughs> technically younger um, female academic um, to figure out how you should dress in academic spaces. It's really like hard and every choice you make is wrong. <laughs> So one of the things that I've tried to do is kind of have my research interest, interests kind of like extend into my personal representation. And one of the ways I try to do that is by dressing a little bit like a superhero. So, you know, like... <laughs> And I'll say dressing like a superhero in terms of one of the things that I'm not talking about wearing the teensy tiny bikini to do my lectures. I'm more talking about sort of the way that a superhero costume can be an expression of your identity. So if you think about your clothes as an extension of yourself, that's like in essence what a superhero costume is and thinking about ways that I could represent that and have that be something I'm communicating to students and have it be something that I could communicate that pride and kind of, you know, lack of fear to students. And maybe that that could be a way that I could get past or around or you know 
bring into conversation some of those issues about how we represent ourselves and how we dress um, in professional spaces or all spaces. Mm -hmm. So that's like sort of what that was about. Um, and, um, so important too to kind of role model through action, right? Um, for yeah. this, um, that it's okay um, to do these things. Um, you've, we've already kind of covered, you know, your work going into the archives. Um, I know that this is a kind of a big project anyway for and you. Tiger's in there. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Um, Tiger and Hellcat. Yeah. And, um, but was there anything um, surprising, say, in this, I guess, um, or that you've discovered recently in this, in this kind of interest, this big research program of yours? Well, I mean, I will say when I first did started doing that work, um, <laughs> this sounds awful, but it was almost guilt that motivated me. I mean, a lot of my interest in the superhero genre, I mean, I'll be honest, is for the cute boys, right? I mean, that was my interest when I was 12 and like talking about kind of um, the unusual objectifications of men in the superhero genre is a focus of a lot of my work. But at one point, I confronted the fact that I didn't have a f favorite female superhero. And I was like, why is that? That's awful. And I need to figure out what's going on. And also just figure out, you know, why there had been this sort of exclusion of sort of female fandom over a long period. Because, you know, I mean, I knew that women read comics during all of these eras. And so when I was first doing this feminist history of Marvel piece, I was just like actually shocked to uncover a character like Ms. Marvel from 1977, who's like a superpowered version of Gloria Steinem, because in all of those histories of comics that I had read, she wasn't talked about. And so, as you mentioned before, you know, coming up with alternative histories of comics that include these things, because it just depends on whether these things are considered important to the people who are writing the histories. And so figuring out how many things had been excluded. I mean, that thing I talked about, about Patsy Walker and the cat, like that didn't appear in any histories of superhero comics I'd read when I was studying for my PhD. So, you know, when you find something like that, it really makes you think about why it's been excluded and who's writing these histories. And so that's sort of just an ongoing project of mine to kind of get us to rethink that history of comics. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for your work on that. Um, I know that, you know, COVID-19 hit us, so we've been doing a lot of online teaching. But in general, um, you know, how do you bring in your comics, your comics approach, your teaching uh, comic books into your classroom? Well, a lot of those things that we've already talked about sort of are an aspect of things that I do. Um, I certainly want to emphasize things of, the superhero genre and comics being um, spaces of inclusion rather than exclusion um, that drives a lot of sort of my syllabus composition and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, teaching comics is incredibly, incredibly fun. Um, it's great as a tool of kind of visual literacy. Um, even students kind of in sort of film and visual culture haven't often been sort of compelled to think about ways, things in the way, like visual storytelling in the way that comics encourages us to do so. Like seeing like the light, like the light bulb, like above the head when you have a comics page and you're like, do you get how like this symmetrical comics page, you can read it like top to bottom, like left to right and down. But there's also a meaning that goes if you circle the other way. 
and like having them be like, oh my God, I can choose. And you're like, yeah, you can. You can read it at whatever speed you want. And there's relationships diagonally across the page and up and down on the page. And that really like blows their minds. Some students hate that <laughs> because they just want to know what it means. <laughs> they don't like, like that subjectiveness. I have found that. And I do understand that because I'm someone who isn't like super into super experimental comics. I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist myself. But at the same time, like getting them to think about, you know, I mean, Scott McCloud, um, you know, sort of defining comics as this art of juxtaposition, right? And getting them to think about the relationship between one panel and another and things like participation and, and participatory culture and sort of theories of reading the popular work so well in conversation with comic books. Mm. So that's definitely sort of a source of a lot of my teaching on comics. And then in terms of the superhero genre, um, I primarily do a lot of work on issues of representation, sort of taking superheroes as cultural ideals and figuring out what do we mean by a cultural ideal? You know, what is being sort of articulated in the conflict between a superhero and a supervillain? Female superheroes are incredibly like useful for teaching about what conceptions of female strength have been in various eras. So a lot of my research on superheroes kind of extends from that. And I mean, so many other things you can talk about transmediality and adaptation and, and so many things. And again, those be sometimes become real light bulb moments too, because people are already kind of aware of these characters and already have that investment. And you can really exploit that to get them interested in something like <laughs> taking a look at a comic book like The Cat, which they won't have heard of, but they do know the Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. And so like that can be a good kind of avenue to get them talking about those theories of reading the popular, those histories of pop culture, theories of genre fiction, all of those things. I would even go, I would say too, um, the light bulb for us in the classroom, I know this is your experience as well. Um, it's like kind of super floodlight light bulb, right? Because yeah. you know, they're like, hold on, I know I saw this movie with my buddies, but I had no idea like uh, this level was, you know, and so then like, you know, wow. Uh, um, so you are working on this new project that's so exciting, right? The TV show Man from Uncle. That'd be a fun one. Yeah, tell tell me about this. What are you, this this work you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing some superhero work. I probably will always be doing some superhero work, but um, I am working on a book for um, the TV Milestone series from Wayne State University Press. Um, so it's sort of it sort of spotlights um, iconic television series. And um, I am doing Man From U.N.C.L.E., which they surprisingly haven't had a volume on yet. So um, spies have been kind of like a B interest of mine for a while. There's a lot of overlap between sort of like spy stuff and superhero stuff in terms of dual identities and sort of deviant representations of gender and sexuality. So a lot of my sort of work in those areas can kind of be extended into looking at spies. Um, so specifically, though, spy-fi, which is, you know, not realistic spies in any sense. And Man from U.N.C.L.E. Um, is just a fascinating television show in so many ways. It's foundational to a lot of female fandom, which, you know, again, gets me back to that interest. So Kirk and Spock and Napoleon and Ilya um, from Man from U.N.C.L.E. are sort of the foundations of, like, the slash fiction genre, um, which extends from the text itself. Um, this was sort of a show that did sort of a try to appeal to female readers and was viewers, I should say, in this case, um, and was very much in conversation with the sexual revolution. Um, one of the really interesting conventions of Man from Uncle, which is one of the things that makes it very different from James Bond, is its incorporation of quote unquote 
average or normal women into kind of the spy-fi universe. So a convention of man from uncle is that they will have what, you know, is conventionally in man from uncle speak called an innocent character. And like, it could be like a young school teacher or, a, or in the pilot episode, it's, it's a mother who gets um, swept up in the adventures of Napoleon and Ilya and gets to have this adventure with them. And, you know, a little bit of romance with them oftentimes um, and help save the world um, before returning to her regular life, which, you know, <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's still sort of a space that sort of allowed sort of women to participate in this very, again, sort of very male genre um, in some interesting ways. And then again, we would call it like queer baiting now, some of the stuff that goes on with Napoleon and Ilya in this show, but at the time it was just sort of an element of camp, right? It's very related in terms of its camp presentation to the Batman 66 television show. Um, those are kind of two of the icons of TV camp from the era. So that will certainly be something I'll talk about as well. It's a great show too, to talk about representations of new masculinities, the difference between Napoleon and Ilya is kind of these softer men compared to James Bond. There's a great sort of Life Magazine article about the show from that era that called James Bond, um, like <laughs> it called Napoleon Solo, like the living room spy and James Bond, the bedroom spy and like kind of figured Napoleon Solo as this sort of man to appeal to kind of like the new sort of feminist, pre-feminist, whatever kind of woman. He's the spy that you can have over for dinner and not be afraid he's going to say something inappropriate to your family. He's a nice spy, which um, is a fascinating topic. I love it. I can't wait. And um, okay, I know you're probably like exhausted, but let me let me ask you, where is... Like, okay, when the two little seconds that you have at the end of every day or at the end of every week and on the proverbial nightstand, what comics do you have? I guess would be a, like a way to get at this question maybe. Well, it's horrible right now because a lot of new comics aren't shipping. So I want to see what's going to happen in X-Men, but everything's been stalled for kind of a while. Um, I was kind of dreading this question because I don't think I have like a real comprehensive answer to this. Everybody's so concerned right now about what's going to happen to comic shops. Um, and I have no good answer for that. I have no idea what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen or when this pandemic is going to end. So that makes it a really difficult question. But also I read a lot of old stuff. So I have been rereading the comic book series Excalibur, um, starring my favorite X-Men Nightcrawler um, recently. I had a friend who gave me a bunch of their old comics, which was like unbelievably amazing. And being able to kind of read them, and I always had them as digital files, but being able to read them in kind of their original thing with the ads. And I'm really enjoying the letters pages in them a lot. <laughs> it's just 80% of the letter letters in Excalibur are kind of like, love letters to Kitty Pride, which is just fascinating and a little bit creepy because she's a teenager in the comics at that time, but still an interesting document at the very least. And um, <laughs> those letters that are writing in um, wanting to marry Nightcrawler from women always amuse me as well, because I totally would have been one of those <laughs> letter writers if I'd known about this comic book at that time, which I did not. But so I've really been enjoying kind of revisiting that and and some of the interesting kind of X-Men expanded universe character work that goes into that title. Yeah. But um, yeah, in terms of new stuff, I mean, yeah, I like sort of read scattered stuff. I've been interested in a lot of, you know, being very true to brand, sort of a lot of the attempts to appeal to female readers and that kind of thing. There's been some interesting novelizations and stuff like aimed at like sort of like um, stuff that I've been wanting to do some work on. So I don't know, that's not a good answer. I don't think I have an answer about where comics are going. They're in a very uncertain moment right now and I hope that they survive it.
Well, maybe you, your answer is the answer, which is a kind of back to the future, right? Um, so gosh, Anna Peppard, thank you. You have like just exploded my brain with all of this. I love it in such a good, powerful way. You've taken us all on this great journey. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy that we have the Super Sex book in your series, and I'm thrilled to virtually meet you after enjoying your work for so long. And thanks so much again for having me.